Good morning. I'm Melissa Hollinger, and I serve uh, on the Board of Elders here. We'll be reading today from James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to see you. Glad you're here. I'm going to talk this morning about just one book of the Bible. It's a small book of the Bible compared to uh, the one we covered last week, which was Hebrews. Today we're going to talk about the epistle to James. But before I say something about James, I want to say something about all the New Testament. Here's what I want to say. If you, for instance, read one, only one of my letters to a friend, and then you assumed you understood me completely, you would probably be wrong. Or, as a matter of fact, if you listened to one of my sermons and thought you had the total summation of what I considered to be theology, you'd probably be wrong. Why? Because we need more than just one letter. So it would be great if James had produced 25 letters, but he didn't, at least not the ones that are recorded in the Scripture. There's something else to be said about letters. If I wrote a letter to my daughter and my wife wrote a letter to my son, and you compared those two letters, you might say, well, they're contradicting one another. They got a different parenting style. Not really. Uh, we contradict one another a lot, but I'm, I'm just saying, we're, we're on the same page, right? Sometimes people look at the New Testament as a bunch of disparate letters. Letters to so-and-so, letters to so-and-so. And sometimes we suggest that one letter is actually in competition in terms of theology with another letter. That often happens when we read the epistle of James. So theologians, for instance, for years have argued about James's theology compared to Paul's theology. Here's what I want to suggest. In order for us to understand what following Christ means, we can't just listen to James and then listen to Paul and then create some sort of competitiveness between the two in terms of the theology. 
we need to look at the whole revelation of God. The church in, in some of the earliest days considered this to be a very important principle. That's why we have what you call a canon. In other words, they took all these books and united them and they said, this canon, human as it is, is also a divine letter from God. And it is very human because you can see James and you can see Paul. But overall, it's the word of God to anyone who reads it or accepts it as such. So today when we listen to James... You might say to yourself, well, that doesn't sound quite right because I've read the book of Galatians before. Before you jump into a criticism, let's think about it, okay? What else do I want to say about James and and this epistle? I want to say this. Some of you have friends that you really love and are really important to you, and they're really smart, and they dig down really deep. And so you ask them a simple question, and they give you a 15-minute explanation, right? You know those friends, right? They can be really annoying sometimes, but you love them. And, And as a matter of fact, they're very helpful because they think deeply. Then you have other friends who, when you ask them a question, they give you an answer with about five words, and they put a period at the end of it, or maybe even an exclamation point. And it's over. It's straightforward. It's practical. It's simple. It's almost in your face sometimes. It almost feels rude. That's James. He's not complicated. He doesn't write long sentences like Paul. He just says it with a few words, and he means it, and he wants you to listen. So here we go. What does he say? He begins at the very beginning. It's a good place to begin, isn't it? It's the very beginning of his letter, and he says... Actually, what we consider to be trials and suffering, they're not all bad. As a matter of fact, they might even be a blessing. Listen to his words. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Friends, he says, not all suffering is bad. I know that's hard to believe. Because we don't like to suffer. I know it's hard to try to understand how God is at work in your suffering. I know how it's hard to accept that suffering could be there for good. But if you're really worked up about it, if you're overwhelmed by it, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray for wisdom. Instead of being angry about your circumstances or angry toward God, just pause for a moment. And pray for wisdom. Now, wisdom doesn't mean that you get all the answers, but wisdom means you put yourself in a different perspective. You say, in effect, God, what am I missing? What do I need to learn here? And I promise you, says James, if you have that posture, you're going to be given wisdom. You'll understand things you wouldn't have understood on your own. 
Now, of course, this isn't an invitation to bring on suffering for yourself. That would be stupid, right? It's also not a suggestion that all suffering is evil, because we know not all suffering is evil. It's also not a suggestion that every bit of suffering that comes our way is a punishment from God. What James is saying is this. Suffering is big, suffering is large, and God takes the bigness and the largeness of life, including suffering, and shapes us in the way he wants to shape us. So have that perspective on life. Let let me put it differently. Don't try to fix it all. Let God work on your heart in the middle of it all. Second thing I want to note about James comes in... uh, Chapter 1, verse 14, or beginning with verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Be careful. Take temptation seriously. Don't say, oh, I can handle that much. Because it'll turn into something else. That's really solid advice. Matter of fact, a lot of times when I read the book of James, I hear the echo of Jesus. After all, we think James was a brother of Jesus. What do I hear in these words an echo? I hear the words of Jesus when he said on one occasion, let me tell you what murder is all about. It's when you hate your brother. Now, he didn't mean that real murder was the same thing as hatred, Maybe James's interpretation of Jesus' words are helpful at this point. He says, if you allow anger to fester, it will turn into uncontrollable rage, which could lead to murder. The same thing's concerning a lust and adultery. If you allow it to fester, it could turn into something bigger than you ever imagined. So be careful. When temptation hits you, when sin is ever-present, Be careful, because it could destroy you. He goes on to say this. um, In chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit at my feet on the floor. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my brothers and sisters, has not God chosen 
those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? The answer would be yes. Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name to whom you belong? Be careful about favoritism. Man, we could apply that at all kinds of levels, couldn't we? So instead of making multiple applications, I will ask you to take up the principle and ask yourself this question. Have I ever favored somebody because they've got a lot or because I know my favoritism towards them will give me something? Just think of it that way. That's what James is saying. So let me be real honest. I'll tell you what a struggle for a pastor like me is. When you walk some, see somebody walk into your church as a visitor, and you happen to know that visitor is a millionaire, how do you treat him? Oh man, he could do great things for this church. Says James, stop it, Bob. Treat everyone equally. Show no favoritism. So as you think about your life, what are those occasions where you've shown favoritism? James says, don't. That's not the way of Jesus. He also goes on to say something that's probably the most controversial thing that he says because it seems opposite of the apostle Paul. And in uh, chapter 2, verse 14, He puts these words together. He said, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is... If it's not accompanied with uh, action, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. James' answer is, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by deeds. You believe that there is a God? Good for you, congratulations, kudos. But even the demons believe and shudder. You foolish person. Faith without works is dead. So maybe you're thinking of the contrast the Apostle Paul in Galatians and other places where he talks almost exclusively about justification by grace through faith. It's got nothing to do with works. True, true, true. And then you hear James's words. True, true, true. They're actually not a contradiction to one another. They're certainly not a contradiction to the teachings of Jesus. Basically, James is saying, look, you can have all the faith you want by your definition, and you don't have any faith. 
Because faith is more than just believing. Faith is actually believing and being transformed. You can't have true faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, our master servant, and treat people with disdain. You can't have faith and live opposite of the teachings of Jesus. That just proves you don't have faith. That's just belief. And belief is really just intellectual and to a certain extent vacuous. He goes on in chapter 3 to make another point. I told you straightforward and right to the point. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So that's why I almost just didn't take this job. That, those are my words, not James. <laughs> we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who never is never at fault in what he says is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder. In whatever direction the pilot wants it to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest fire is set ablaze by a tiny little bitty spark. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest fire set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Why don't you just say what you mean, James? (laughs) It's just like that. I don't know if you've ever been in a real forest fire. I have as a young boy. I wasn't like in the camp whenever it started, but my father took me down the road and showed it to me, and it was out of control in a state park called Jonathan Dickinson State Park in Florida. It it was so bad that the whole park was burned, all the trees, and we watched them tumble over by the wind after they were burned up, and then we watched for years, 20, 30 years, to the new growth coming up. But when I was there watching that fire with my father in the car, in relative safety, I realized that the fire was so massive that it was out of control and it could do anything it wanted. And it would literally jump from the state park into the center median of the divided highway called US-1 and jump from the divided highway across to the next patch of forest. Fortunately, the next patch of forest was right next to the intercoastal waterway and it could go no farther. If there hadn't been an intercoastal waterway, unbelievable amounts of damage would have been done and maybe lives lost. Our town would probably have been destroyed in a way that it wasn't. 
a forest fire is enraging. And James says, that's your tongue. When you use your tongue the wrong way, you start a fire. You start a fire among your friends and your family. A raging fire that's out of control. Watch your tongue. But let's remember something else. He's not just talking about individuals and friendships. He's talking about the community of faith. And he's essentially saying, you're responsible for your tongue in the midst of the community of faith because you can destroy your church with your tongue. You don't have to have position. You don't have to have money. Just use your tongue improperly and you can destroy. Be careful. Be careful. He also says that there's basically two kinds of wisdom. Or let me put it another way. It's really not that complicated, he says. There's the wisdom from above and there's the wisdom from below. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitterness and envy and selfish ambition in your heart, then do not, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, in quotes, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Wow. Selfish ambition, boasting, pride. It's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Stop it, says James. Don't pattern your life after those who live like that. That's opposite the wisdom of the cross. Who are your heroes? Who do you emulate? The people that are bombastic? The people that are always talking about themselves? The people that are boastful? You're not following. You're not following the Lord if you follow that. Stop, says James. He goes on to say something else about our life. And this could be taken the wrong way, as all practical, straightforward advice could. But, but listen to it. He says, I want you to listen to what you say or how you say it. I want you to listen to yourself. In verse 13 of chapter 4. You say things like this. Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, do you not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? Stop talking about your plans for a minute and ask that question. What is your life? Well, his answer is you're a mist that disappears after just a short period of time. Instead, with that knowledge of your life, you ought to say, if the Lord's willing, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. 
All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and does not do it, for them it is sin. Well, hang on a minute. Evil schemes? What what did he just describe? Didn't sound like an evil scheme to me. It just sounded like good planning. We're going to go to this town. We're going to do this. We're going to make a profit here. Evil schemes? Why would he say something about something so innocuous as plans? He says it because he wants you to get a different perspective on life. It doesn't matter what you plan in your life. You need to plan as though today was the last day of your life because you don't know when your life is coming to an end. You need to enter into the value that is eternal today, whatever you're doing, because you don't know what's going to happen next. Be be heavenly-minded. Don't just be earthly-minded. I'm still going to keep a calendar of events for next week, okay? I don't think that's what he's talking about. I'm still going to plan a trip to see my family in December in Florida. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a perspective. He also goes on to say in um, chapter 5, Beginning with verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the ministry that is, excuse me, that's wrong. Because of the misery (laughs) that is coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and Eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent those who were not even opposing you you're in big trouble said James and who is it that's in big trouble let me be as direct as James would be if he were here we are why because we're rich I know you don't feel like it, but you and I are. Because we have everything we need. And again, because the perspective we have on our life is all about us and all about our money and all about what we can accomplish based on the good work we've done. And James says, no, you got it all wrong. Those who are the richest are the ones most susceptible to sin because riches replace God. Riches replace servanthood. Riches replace faith. Be careful if you're wealthy. You're in a dangerous place. 
that's a word for all of us. Be careful, says James. Then he ends with something, well, it's not the last verse, but it's pretty close. He ends with a promise, and I love this promise because he said, I want you to know something. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. Now imagine the divine calculus that makes no sense. That's it. Because we know everything about life. We know how to fix things. Everything's lined up. We have our schedules. We know what we're going to do the next day. We know how we're going to live. Prayer changes things. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't give an explanation. He doesn't go into the details about how prayer changes things. He doesn't address the difficulties of when you pray and you don't get what you ask for. He just says prayer changes things. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much, which means makes change. So, a summary of what James is saying is this. Stop worrying about how prayer changes things and just pray. Stop worrying about the dilemma between God's sovereignty and our free will and the possibility that we're manipulating the divine and just pray. Stop worrying about all the anomalies. We live in anomalies and just pray. There's the command. Just pray because prayer changes things. I want, to, I want to conclude by acknowledging something. Not everything that these people who were called the 12 tribes scattered, it's one of the interesting parts of James. It wasn't written to a particular place. It was written to people who were scattered all over the place. It might have arrived at a particular place, but it was to the 12 tribes scattered all over the place. Not everything he says has what you might call an exact one-for-one correlation in our world, Right? Nothing is like that in the scripture. So what are we looking for? We're looking for timeless principles. Timeless principles to apply to our discipleship. And James gives them to us. And you've heard just a few of them. Second thing I want to say is this. We are smart. I'm not bragging. But we are. Smart, well-educated, wealthy people. And because we're smart, well-educated, and self-sufficient, we need to hear it straight. And James does that for us. I don't care who you are, where you are, who you say you are, listen to me. I got some straightforward advice. Because we're smart, well-educated, and wealthy, we have an almost endless ability to rationalize. We say, oh, wait a minute, that that doesn't reply to me. You don't understand. We're masters at it. James will have none of it. He doesn't care about your rationalization. He just wants you to hear the word. And here's something that's amazing when I thought about it this week. If we really listen, like he says, and don't turn away like the man in the mirror who forgets what he looks like, if we really listen, 
and we really obey, everything, everything will change. That's huge. Let's pray.